0: Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, I'm in the buzzing city of London. If you've ever been here, everyone is rushing around like a maniac. It seems so pressuring, so driven, so fast. And yet, as you walk through this wonderful city that you never really managed to fully love and never really managed to fully hate, you find those beautiful parks scattered all over the city, which makes it sort of natural. There's so much nature around. And I always loved that about London. I always used to joke with my friends and say, this city is fast nature. We are rushing around all through the city and then every now and then you get to a park. And I once then noticed that there was this very clever little chain of fast food restaurants that was called Naturally Fast or the mission of it sort of was Naturally Fast food and it's called leon and that really caught my attention naturally fast and fast nature seems to be an interesting description of how life is over here their mission i found out was we're gonna make tasty food that is good for you but good for the planet and i I love that for years now that idea of doing business for good or using business to do good actually is something that's really missing since I probably say the beginning of the 20th century, business was all about the money, really. You build a business plan, you go to investors, you talk about what you're trying to do, and most investors will listen and smile and then say, how much money are we going to make? In my mind, I feel that, that capitalism is probably the most powerful tool on the planet. You know, If you want to scale anything or get to the proper reach across the globe, you probably have to use the engine that is known as capitalism. And so it seems that Leon was based on that. It's like, we're going to feed you, it's going to be fast food, but it's going to be good for you and good for the planet. And I think that's a really interesting idea that I've been contemplating even for my happiness mission. Anyway, turns out that Danny Doneke, who I hosted here on Slow Mo in episode 169, and then we became the closest of friends, an amazing human being, knows the founder or the co-founder of Leon, John Vincent. And so he introduced us. I invited John over to come and chat about that idea of using business to build better things for humanity. Turns out that he's a, a good business addict. So after Leon, he ran the UK's government school food plan. He created and uh, chaired the Council for Sustainable Business, which was basically. Yeah, uh, <laughs> no, I, stu- I studied <laughs> you really, really well, and now you have uh, Longhouse, which yeah. is the Longhouse is an effort to basically, I love, love the description to sort of motivate positive disruptors. You know that in in our world of business, the idea of disruption is so important, but maybe disruption can be good to our planet too. So. He agreed to come and visit me in my tiny little Airbnb here. Lovely, thank you. And uh, and we uh, we'll just talk about if business can actually be good for humanity and lots of other topics. So joining me and welcoming John Vincent. Thank you oh, so much for so being much. here. What a
1: lovely introduction.
0: Oh, thank you. Um, I mean, I have to say, it's you seem to be the odd one out when it comes to business. Like nobody really cares about good for you or good for the planet. Mostly what businesses do is they do what they have to do to make profits and then they have a strategy around yes. social responsibility yes. that basically makes them look good. Yes. You, you didn't do it that way, you went the opposite way.
1: And we once, um, Henry and I once were kindly given an award by an organization called First, which I think is a, it's almost like the in-house magazine for foreign office people around the world actually. And it was the award for sustainable capitalism. And uh, someone who uh, presented the award, who later became um, Savage, Javid, who I think that's how I pronounce his name, who later became actually Chancellor uh, recently in the UK of the Exchequer. And he, as he was giving it to us, he said, "We we know the purpose of capitalism is to make money, but oops, we'd better we know we better make it a bit more sustainable." <laughs> and as I was as yes. I was I remember as I was walked up to the stage, I said, "It just occurred to me that that description is just not." F- a fair reflection on humanity, because what I said in my grateful acceptance speech was that I think it's looking down the wrong end of the telescope, because if we were a tribe in the rainforest, it is the chief gathered everyone around and said, look, our objective guys and girls is to make money. (laughs) But once we've poisoned the rivers and once we've killed the monkeys and we've killed the insects, then we'll give back. And maybe we'll go to a charity event uh, and we'll, bid for some footballer's shirt, sign shirt, uh, and we'll we'll give back to a charity. Well, you know, to give back once we've destroyed everything. When,
0: when you put it this way, her. it sounds really <laughs> and so really. And, so,
1: and so I remember thinking, well, surely the purpose of any endeavour, whether it's what you might call charity or whether you, it's what we might call commercial with those labels, any endeavour must be to create something magic and to do something to protect the amazing assets that we already have, be those emotional assets that we have, or be those physical assets that we have in the world. Our job is to just make the most of those and to help humans be human beings. That's what the purpose of business must be, but we must do it in a way which is financially sustainable. So for me, you go on holiday, the fuel is essential. You would like to have some fuel in your airplane as it's going across the Atlantic, but but burning fuel is not the objective of going on holiday. But the fuel is pretty important if you want to sustain what you're doing, if you want to actually get the aircraft the other side. So to that to that point, the holiday is the objective. The doing some good must be the objective. The improving humanity's position on this planet um, must be the objective of any business because otherwise we're back to sort of donut economics where we're slowly eating away at the core of society or slowly eating away at the core of the planet's ecological resources for what gain? So I just think that we need to look down the other end of the telescope. But that's,
0: that's not what people do. I mean, when I joined Google back in 2000, end of 2006, beginning of 2007, Google was a business that was entirely about organizing the world's information and making it universally accessible and useful was the mission. And I can promise you, you walk the corridors. Actually, I worked for Google EMEA, which was headquartered here in Belgravia. And then you walk around the corridors and everyone knew why we were there. We were there to organize the world's information. And yeah, money is a side product of that. And money sort of, you know, helps fuel that. But that was for the first few years. And then of course, you know, and I don't blame Google for it. The business grew and grew and grew and grew and then they started to have to run it like an adult if you want. And so you get what I used to call the bureaucrats in, which is not a bad word. They're good at what they do. They maximize profit. They make sure that you're in compliance. And suddenly the business loses track of that mission of organizing the world's information. And the conversation becomes entirely around how much more are we going to make next quarter? How much more are we? It seems that the system is set up in a way that's not favoring doing any good at all. Yeah, yeah, I think that's
1: right. And I think that there are so many businesses, as we know, that start off mission-led uh, and then they become empty because actually what happens is Warren Buffett might call the institutional imperative. And sometimes that's because the professionals that run it are not necessarily the founders anymore. Absolutely. And those people have a completely different agenda. I mean, look at what happened with Apple, where in the interregnum between Steve Jobs's two principal stints at Apple, the guy came in and said, no, from now on we're a manufacturing business. We're going to be really good at running computer factories. That's what we're going to do. And guys, the grown-ups are here now. And I think that when the grown-ups arrive in some of these businesses, you absolutely, you you lose the zeal because someone comes in and as the, as the chief executive there, they have, clearly they have investors, if you've got the wrong investors, who don't have the right measures. We'll come back to that in a minute, hopefully. Then the metrics of the professionals running those investment companies and then the metrics of that CEO are absolutely probably a three, maximum five-year stint as CEO. And that CEO's mindset is, I'd like to have a motorboat as big as my friend's motorboat, and um, <laughs> yes. and my wife would or husband sorry yes. my husband or wife would like to for me to be successful and to keep up with the Joneses, and then we will have reached the promised land as a family, and we can start having some fun at that point. And that's just the cycle that everyone gets into. So gone are the days where you have the Quakers running a business, or where you have you know Mister Roundtree. Uh, building houses for, in that case, his workers. For me, we're missing the professionalisation and the domination of the professional management class has divorced us from passion and divorced us from mission. And professionalisation has taken away heart and, uh, and love from business because actually people feel embarrassed to talk about that if they're professional CEOs.
0: I mean, it's sad when you say it this way, because in a way um, we all know that that CEO eventually gets the boat and eventually his wife gets whatever she's planned for and they have a slightly bigger house than their neighbors and it's all empty. I mean, in reality, I mean, I know two types of CEOs, honestly, and I know hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of them. You have that type that eventually wakes up and goes like, what am I doing with my life? And you have the type that somehow, despite how intelligent they are, they just don't get it, right? So they work really hard, make tons of money, have a very, very lavish life and then go like, but I'm still not happy, maybe I need more money, okay? And so they work even harder and harder, but neither of it actually works at all. And perhaps the only ones I found happy were the ones that felt they were making a difference. Right. I have an
1: acupuncturist. also went to an osteopath, a guy called Renzo Molinari, almost like the grandfather of osteopathy, actually, in, in, uh, in London, in the UK. And I said, how many of your clients are happy? And he said, very few are happy. And he said, very few of the well-off ones, rich ones, very full of ones with money. He said, the only ones of my clients are the ones that are actually doing what they love. They're actually doing what they love. And I think... I don't know whether you know Alan Watts, or you remember Alan mm, Watts, mm, the philosopher, of course, yeah, one yeah. of his one of his more popular list and slightly more accessible, Liddell's videos, explains that we've got the wrong analogy about life. It says, you know, we've got, and I'm sure you're all over this in your happiness projects, but um, he said, you know, we take the analogy of a journey, and people say, well, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. He said, but that's fine, but there's not even a destination, so how can there be a journey even, right? Oh, so, what so, is, so what he's saying is, so what he's saying is, The universe is inherently playful, right? So instead of using the journey analogy, we should be using play as an analogy. When you play the piano, you're not trying to get through the piano piece as fast as possible. Yes? (laughs) When you're dancing, I know you, I like to talk about dance. My wife uh, did uh, Dancing with the Stars or Strictly Come Dancing here. But it's not about getting to a point on the dance floor as fast as possible,
0: right? (laughs) It's such a beautiful way to look at it. He says the
1: universe is inherently playful. And we must play, and that is what we must do. But we must play in a way that doesn't compromise or screw up the wonderful natural resources and the beauty of the world that we have inherited and that we should leave to our children. So that's basically of proffering an alternative metaphor
0: of play. I think we can talk about this topic alone. I want to talk about many topics, but this topic is actually, again, on my mind very heavily. Because the idea of play from one side is very comforting, right? Because in reality, when you really think about it, the final destination for all of us is that you're gonna switch off your console, right? So, you know, eventually you you or I or whatever game we're playing, we're just gonna switch off this game console and we're gonna be fine, right? But the question is on the past there, if you're a true gamer like I am, suddenly you realize that it actually doesn't matter if you build Leon or not. It doesn't matter if you build Appy or you know, you you work on slow-mo, in a way why what motivates us to do those things if it's all about play is a very interesting question isn't it
1: yeah i think i think that most people that write a book and you've written books right and uh, and i've written a few good books and one winning not fighting book which i find I've always loved writing for me. It's not the production of the book for most authors is not the thing. Yeah. Really. <laughs> <laughs> That's the worst part. So much, I've got to tell him all about it. <laughs> what? Um, um, I, it's, it's literally the play of, of, uh, discovery. Of, of discovery. And for me, we you know myself and J- Juden, who we, I wrote my, my Wing Chun teacher who we wrote the book with. What was lovely is going to a cabin in the woods and coming across an intellectual challenge that we couldn't answer, going into the woods, doing Wing Chun, walking, th- throwing... I remember we, ha- we spent an hour trying to break a giant piece of wood on a, on, a, on a block that we couldn't break. That was playing. And it was only through playing that we had the intellectual breakthrough. And that happened to be around the similarities and the differences of, of our thinking versus Sun Tzu, the art of war. And there are big differences between us and Sun Tzu. But um, I think playing gives you... Insight it gives you it brings you back to the present moment because what we are fundamentally about is re- rerouting ourselves back in the present and I think play absolutely does that and so I think if I think about the idea of the the product the product is not why we do things we in fact if I look at the Bhagavad Gita or if I look at an, an anglicised book about that the great work of your life the principle is play in a masterful way in the present moment and give up all fruits do not in any way be uh governed or owned by the fruits that may or may not come from that mastery and that playful mastery so i think that that's why we do i mean of course it's wonderful to have done leon and it's wonderful for you to have done all the things that you've done but it certainly is doesn't define the present moment doesn't doesn't define us as we are sitting here right now
0: that's such a beautiful way of looking at it i mean Honestly of course as a gamer so I am a very serious yeah. gamer I've been stuck so Bungie made Halo Infinite much more complex much more difficult than all other Halos and like I used to be legendary in all other <laughs> Halos and I'm actually struggling to finish legendary on in the last Halo and and it's interesting because I've been stuck with one of those bosses now believe it or not for the last 38 days I practice 4 times a week 45 minutes a day because yeah. I'm sort of playing at an Olympic champion level, wow, if you want. Wow, it's just yeah, really, really yeah, yeah. uh flow, really. Yeah. And I literally play around a minute and a half every single time I encounter that boss and he kills me. And then I play another minute and a half and another minute and a half and another minute and a half for 45 minutes. And you know, when people ask me, like, well, how do you do that? Are you not frustrated? And I'm like, No, I'm going to play for 45 minutes. It doesn't matter if I kill him or not, really, right? And every time you do this, you're enjoying it more, you're discovering little things, you're gaining skills. And eventually, sooner or later, he's going to die. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you never know
1: when, in in mastery, we'd say, you never know when the breakthrough will come. Absolutely. You cannot control the breakthrough, just do the practice. And and, and the funny
0: thing is, if I killed him in 45 seconds, I wouldn't have 38 days of play. You know, it's it's really quite interesting. But then you apply those things to other parts of life and you start to question the idea. I mean, again, I tend to share very openly. I struggled for a while after my wonderful wife and I separated to find a steady relationship. And, you know, at a point in time, I almost gave up. And I was like, this is not working. And then one of my friends, like a year ago, sat with me and said, is dating really so horrible? I mean, I see the women that you're with. You shouldn't really be complaining. Why would you give up? Like, why are you so focused on I need club. to love the second life yeah, of my yeah, life yeah, yeah. when what you're actually having in your life is amazing, amazing, amazing beings that come into my life, enrich it in so many ways. Yeah, not maybe the perfect match and eventually we it doesn't last, but isn't that yeah, the nature yeah, of life yeah, itself, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah that you've reached an insight there. Yeah, so t- so tell me about the difference between building a business for good to do good and building a business for profit. And then, you know, if it does good, that's fine. I mean, one of them says, I'll build a business for good and I hope that good will make me profits. The other will say, I- I'll build a business for profits and hope that profits will, also leave a bit of impact in life. What was the difference in your process? What was the difference in your experience? Um, Henry, who was uh, my partner uh, for
1: a while, for, for the first part of, of Leon, up until about 2014, he and I were at Bain and & Company. And our job fundamentally was to make businesses more valuable. That was literally that <laughs> full stop. Mm. You make businesses more valuable, end of story. And anything about altruism was, was described as enlightened self-interest rather than actually achieving wholeness. Um and that's not a criticism. They did really well at that. And actually they continue to do well at that. And they're an amazing company, Bain and Company. So I'm not certainly not having a uh saying anything negative about them. But I think I always grew up with a I went to a primary school, which was not a classic. I think it was in 70s education in the UK I think that primary schools were doing a good job of teaching love, not just Latin, or I didn't even do Latin in primary mm. school. And I, having been at Cambridge and had a dance event with Richard, who started Innocent, which is an Adam who started Innocent, which is this lovely juice. Juice, yeah. yeah. Good um, job, guys. Our, our, <laughs> um, we, had, we did dance events, and I had an entertainment company. And my, the reason I had the entertainment company was that I wanted to have fun I wanted to, and that's where I met my wife. Actually, one of the uh, one of these events. So I wanted to do dance events, have bands, have fun, and for me, fun and joy and play were the objective of that entertainment business that I had. And I knew that I had to, if I wanted to carry on having the fun, we needed to make money. So I, when I was at Procter and Gamble, which again is a very commercial yeah, entity, very strict, very strict. Everything is the PG way. I remember a wonderful woman who subsequently become a shaman, actually, but certainly wasn't a shaman at the time. Uh, She said, what what we're doing, John, is we're going to, when I was first there, we're going to take all of the branding that's different all over the world and we're going to standardise. So Ulay, Oil of Olay, Ulay, Olaz, we're going to call it all Olay. And jokingly, I said, oh, that's good. So what you're looking to do is to stamp out any last vestige of local identity around the world. <laughs> and she went, You've got it. <laughs> and yes, I was like, Exactly. Ah, exactly. Yeah, no mm. flavors, no, oh, no tastes. Yeah, yeah. like, ah, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You can't even get the irony. Okay. Now she's a wonderful woman. She's become a But I remember thinking, There has to be a different way. I'm not, this isn't, I'm looking around the office, and I'm thinking, The only reason people are doing this is so they can get a slight. I mean, the arguments with the reps about who had a better car—it was like literally. I remember my friend Dave Mclemens had metallic paint on his car, and one of the other reps was angry. He said, "How did you? How were you allowed to get metallic paint on your car?" (laughs) Uh, And so, so I'm like, "Wow, is this the level of like? Is this the level of intellectual conversations we're having?" And so, and so for me, I realised quite early on that if every business is pursuing money as an outcome and none are considering the whole, then nobody is considering the whole, especially if big businesses like P and G are not considering the whole. And I had a, I started to work with an acupuncturist called Wendy Mandy, who'd started helped help start Virgin. Um, and uh, she did student magazine at Virgin. She did the first ever record shop. She did tubular bells and all the mail, order stuff. And I think, Probably for a few years, Virgin was before it too became more empty, I think. Virgin for a few years was run by a bunch of people that wanted to do things because of the positive outcome. I think for a while, Body Shop, even though now it's owned by L'Oreal, and I think it's lost fundamentally its its revolutionary zeal, was a company, again, that tried to do good. And so for me, I was inspired by people like Anita Roddick, who were genuinely trying to build a community. Now, when you have entrepreneurs like Anita Roddick, eventually the thing gets out of hand and the professionals do take over and their span of control, they don't have the span of control that can retain the values as things scale. And that's a pretty common sort of uh, story, isn't it? But I, I thought to myself, I want to prove that you can have a business that scales. I'm not sure we ever, ever did it. We only we ever 100 million pounds compared to Amazon. That's not a lot. But... I wanted to prove that good could scale and that we could sincerely put doing good at the heart of the company. And I'll give you an example of that. When the pandemic hit and lockdown happened in the UK, every single chain closed. Starbucks closed, McDonald's closed, Pret closed, everybody closed. We were the only food outlet that stayed open in the first lockdown. And the reason that we did that was that making money wasn't the objective. Making it easy for everybody to eat and live well was the objective. So whilst we lost money, we provided with our partners, who uh, a wonderful individual actually who doesn't want to be named but provided a lot of money to support us as well. Uh, Us and he provided a million meals to frontline uh, hospital workers who otherwise would not have been fed. They would not have been fed. There was nowhere for them to eat. There were no canteens in the hospitals. They were covered in PPE. So we had to get the food right to the wards. And the amount of letters that we've had thanking us for that is fantastic from CEOs and from the nurses and doctors themselves. So that explains uh, hopefully just one example of why a business that pretends or greenwashes or ESGs its, its purpose is different from one whose actually fundamental purpose is... To make it easier for everyone to eat and live well. So a lot of these businesses, they say profit is... I mean, JP Morgan said, everyone has a good reason for doing something oh, and then there's the real reason. So the, the good reason for doing something is the greenwashed purpose that, that wraps around a profit motive, if that makes sense. But if your actual purpose is to make it easier for everyone to eat and live well, you don't close in the pandemic. You carry on and make it easier for everybody to eat and live well. And I have to say that in indirect ways, that actually comes and ultimately makes it easier to make profit in the long run because the reputational impact that that has or the landlords start to support you because they recognise what you're doing, the suppliers support you because they recognise what you're doing. In the long run, customers repay you for that. So although you don't do it for that reason, all I'm saying is that it's not a bad thing to focus on a real purpose as opposed to a, a pretend purpose. No, I, I'm, I'm with you 100%. Yeah, yeah, I, have, yeah. I have
0: to admit to you that when in the early years of my stay at Google where we discussed don't be evil almost every single day, like every other meeting, the question, don't be, you know, is this evil? Would that be evil? Would come up, right? It was easier to do business. Right. It really, yeah. it really was.
1: Because because you had this touchstone or because, because, because the conversation you, was allowed? Because
0: you believed yeah. in what you were doing. Yes. Yeah. I think I think we humans somewhere innately inside us realize that a fancier car is not the purpose of life. This life is not about making more money. Well there, do you ever read, read Drive by Daniel Pink is
1: a book uh, called no, Drive and no, he, and, I should, yeah. and, and uh, it's it's a good book but it well, it made me laugh because it was like leading social scientists have discovered that it's some it's other things other than money drive us. I'm like, wow, <laughs> these clever leading social scientists. How clever are they? Tell me what they oh, are. Right? Right? Wow. <laughs> things other than other than money drive yeah. people? Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, we, and we know it's about problem solving, it's about contribution, it's about camaraderie, it's about all the things that pack up. I mean, my dog
0: my dog is not driven by making money. Money is, what, what is money? I mean, yeah. I every time I host an expert on the topic of money, the f- number one part of the conversation that comes up is money doesn't actually exist. Yeah, yeah, money yeah. is an artificial construct yeah, yeah, that yeah, we've yeah. made and now suddenly we're all chasing it. I mean, the opposite side of what you did. I remember vividly, I'm not, I'm not gonna name a name, but I had a friend of mine who was a world leading, world renowned sushi chef who had restaurants in New York and California. and. When the first pandemic hit, she shut down literally within days, if not a couple of weeks. And I say that with love. I mean, mm-hmm. still a friend, but it puzzled me because not just for the people. I mean, if you're a world-leading sushi chef, you were she was getting billionaires in there, right? Shit, right. Yeah. But she had a team that worked for years mm-hmm. with her, and then suddenly they were out of a job, like. Do we not have a responsibility for that team that gave us the yacht and gave us the big apartment in New York, uh, Manhattan, or do we not have those responsibilities? Capitalism seems to be so devoured of values. If it's legal, then it's ethical. It's like, yep, let's do it. It doesn't matter. You make a
1: good point, which is the concept of the unseen hand as this thing, which is the system can operate without human agency or without values, that can't possibly be true. There's, the, I mean, like a knife, you can't leave a knife. Knife isn't a tool, like capitalism at all. tool. It's what humans do with the knife that's important. You can stab someone or you can cut some bread. And I think that the idea that you shouldn't apply any moral, agent, moral values or human agency to a system and a somehow allow the system to run itself with this single money output, it can't be true. There is no system that humans have created that can operate devoid of human agency or value or, or moral code. So for me, I mean, there, there's an issue with, A, how we measure, measure capitalism, how we measure share price and the externalities that are not taken into account with that. But there's also the issue that the leaders... And everybody in that company must have a voice that leads to some kind of compass of truth. I almost said morality because, and I stopped for morality, because I, as a practitioner, or hopefully a practitioner, but as a student of the Tao Te Ching, there's a verse in there that says, when the Tao is lost, there is goodness. When, the good, when goodness is lost, there's morality. And when morality is lost, there's ritual. Say this again. So. In Taoism, the idea is that the Tao is a word that's meant to describe
0: ultimate truth,
1: ultimate truth, and where everything coincides. Mm. As soon as you start to, it's a little bit like when Buddha was asked after his contemplation, what is the answer, he pointed to an apple. And the reason he pointed to an apple was that this is an advert for a computer, but the reason, that he, the reason that he didn't put, he could, it could have been a Dell. No, no, no. Actually, he actually pointed to an actual Apple.
0: I mean, when you say uh, Dell, that, yes. that talks about your age. I so. know, I know. But
1: <laughs> well, I think they're all the rage, aren't they still Dell? I'm still, I'm still I've, I've got business studies around Dell, I have Michael Dell. Oh, like, yeah. Do they, do people still have Dells? I don't know. That was my consulting computer, laptop at the, at the time, absolutely. Um, um, it was an IBM, No, no but the IBMs are still around, aren't they? Anyway. Yeah, they are, uh, yeah. But they my dad worked for ncr which was a competitor so I'd be i come worked back to for that.
0: ncr for a short You're while you kidding actually. me oh yeah, God, i'd
1: like to talk about ncr oh, my dad did, worked. Yeah, leon yeah. leon worked for ncr did you yeah no no leon my dad leon worked ah, for NCR. okay all right, leon all right for NCR, oh, yeah, yeah. right. oh so yeah not the company my dad anyway <laughs> no. that's my point the reason that but pointed at something was he recognized as soon as he used his words to describe truth the truth would be lost because our ability to communicate the truth and the constructs that we've developed through language are fantastic but totally inadequate to describe a truth, if that makes sense. So and as soon as we are describing, and as soon as one agent describes to another agent, they bring their own insecurities to that conversation as well. So the reason that Buddha pointed at an apple was the truth is there. And as soon as I name it, and the first verse of the Dao de Ching, there are 82 verse verses to the Dao de Ching says basically says, in a nutshell, un, the Tao must be unnamed. So the Tao is almost, its like, it could be like the way or flow or, or, or the universe. So the reason that the word Tao is used is it's the word that's least, that means as little as it can to describe the thing that cannot be described. Does that make sense? And so in Taoism, it says, as soon as you name something, and as soon as you you start consciously thinking about good about this thing called the Tao, you lose the Tao, and you have something called goodness. As soon as you lose goodness, what is goodness? Goodness is the the truth that's as close to the Tao as possible,
0: but is not the Tao because you've named it. But the very fact that you've had to it's ask like the me highly, the highly refined version of the truth that can be contained in human communication. Correct. Correct. So now you and I have a conversation about goodness exactly as you
1: have done. Right. But the problem is as soon as we have a conversation about goodness, it applies, starts to apply judgment to it, Right. Is it good or bad to send a kid to school in Africa? Someone might say, wow, that's brilliant. They're being like us and they're going to sit in rows and they're going to learn algebra just like us. Whereas in, in LA, all the Silicon Valley people are sending their kids to forest schools to not sit in rows of classrooms. So <laughs> what is good to somebody now suddenly becomes subjective. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the, the next argument is when goodness is lost, you have morality. What's morality? It's rules. It's you must do this. That's moral. It's the church telling you what is moral or what's moral. It's your parents telling you what is morally right and what is wrong. Moral. So morality is a less pure form of goodness and goodness is a less pure form of the Tao. Does that make sense? Then finally, what you have is ritual, which is I do the Lord's Prayer, I sit there and I'm going to, yeah, oh, our Father, art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And, and actually, all I'm thinking about is how I'm going to make more money the next week. And oh, there's a guy, yeah, but, I, to the... but
0: I stick, to the, ritual yeah, I and I stick to the ritual, which is not a bad thing. It's, it's, right? all, it's yeah. better than
1: nothing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's been nothing, or, yeah. or or incense, or going down the church, and or or, the, or a rose, or a ro, you know a, a rosary bead. Well, there are rituals, right? That we adopt. Christmas it's lovely. It's fine, and it gives us comfort. Rituals give us comfort. But it is not as powerful as morality, it's not as powerful as goodness, and it's not as powerful as the Tao, if that makes sense.
0: You know what I love most about Eastern religions. So I, I studied all religions, like not all, if nobody has, but I studied Taoism, I studied Hinduism, um, Buddhism, Islam, Sufism, Christianity, Judaism, and so on. So the, the interesting side of Eastern religions is they take it from the right side down, Abrahamic religions, if you want mostly focus, at least the practice of it now, mostly focuses on from the bottom side up. So they focus so much more on the ritual. Yes. In a correct belief that if you stick to the ritual, you will sort of conclude what the moralities are. If you really start to ponder what the moralities are, you're going to get to the goodness. And then if you stick with the goodness long enough, by the end of your life, you're going to get to the truth.
1: That's really interesting because the progression of Wing Chun, which is the martial art that I talk about in the book, it starts out quite directive around the actions. And it's only as you go through the four doors that you realize the truth behind some of the form and actions that you have in the first instance. So you become increasingly conscious, and then you go back to being unconscious again. And it's that so, cycle, yeah. which we, and you have to start
0: with the rituals. You have to start with the. But but the everyone, does. everyone does. Everyone does. I mean, even yeah. even Buddhism, you know, will tell you, okay, go be a monk, yeah. which is a yeah. very very yeah. strict regime if you want, and you do that for seventeen years, and then you advance. But when the conversation is happening, it's not about the rituals. When the pondering, when the reflection is happening, it's about what's the heart of compassion, or what is this, or what is that. It's it's about that top line of it. Do you think that we've lost a lot as humanity, as business leaders, by giving up on spirituality in a way? Yes, I think.
1: I think the word spirituality can be people take the piss out or Mickey. Yeah, is what the word is yeah. is. yeah, yeah. People take the piss out of the idea of spirituality, and it is difficult to. It is difficult to describe, but I think that we do need to see, and it's it's difficult because suddenly. 2 years ago no one was talking about mental health in business and now you can't open a newspaper or a magazine or a podcast or whatever without someone talking about mental health at work so we need to be careful because suddenly people suddenly adopt spirituality in quite empty ways if it's not done in a in a considered way but i do think that absolutely the world has lost a lot and the world has believes that has put all the emphasis on rational thinking has put, uh, doesn't understand Jungian archetypes, doesn't understand the power of magic and storytelling, and doesn't understand the power of, of spirit yeah, ritually, and attention to wholeness yeah, and yeah. ritual practice. Yeah. And I'll just give you exa- just one example of, of, of civilian life, as in non commercial, non military life, where I remember where um, commercial actually, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's <laughs> a new one. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's, yeah. it's so, like yeah. when you're in business, <laughs> yes. you're not a civilian. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, what I mean, yes, exactly. What I mean is, it's like it's like true life. Is um, <laughs> I remember when I grew up, the idea of Easter was you had Easter eggs on it at Easter, and you had Lent was the period in which you didn't eat chocolate. Now, supermarkets sell Easter eggs. And cabbage, cream, eggs for the whole of Lent, and you see kids eating chocolates. People now eat more chocolate in Lent <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> because it's Easter time yeah. than they did before. And those sorts of disciplines that in Wing Chung were provided by Confucianism, those kinds of knowing when to fast, which you have in Ramadan in, in Islam and other religions have as well. Those are really important disciplines. And in Wing Chun, those were given to us by Confucius, whereas the Tao gave us the ability to flow within those rituals and within those structures. So, so Confucianism provided the riverbank, and Taoism provided the flow. And I think that we, we absolutely need to, to, to remember those as society, and business is no different. So, yes, we need to remember them in business because we need to remember them for our lives more broadly.
0: I mean, this is really an interesting point to reflect on. I mean, when you talk about Ramadan and fasting or Lint, every spiritual faith has some kind of fasting. It just reminds me of the power of intention, really, because it is not a lie that fasting is quite fashionable nowadays Mm. right so you know if you talk to anyone about intermittent fasting they'll say yep it's
1: become an app um exactly it's like a it's like all those adverts you're like skip ad yes
0: skip the bloody ad (laughs) (laughs) we 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 definitely definitely believe in fasting now but when it's when when it's given to someone through spirituality the intention is no i'm not going to do that
1: well it's like the difference between eastern yoga and california yoga right eastern yoga (laughs) is about the practice Uh and it's Actually, about the immediacy and doing yoga in the present moment. In California, yoga's been turned into a yoga for better abs. Oh, yes. And people do yoga for better abs. And then they fight each other to get to the juice bar.
0: Mm. Do you know what (laughs) I mean? They
1: get get annoyed if someone's in the line ahead of them. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And so intermittent fasting could actually be, you could abstract an element, a health element, but if you haven't got the spiritual element attached to it, then you're missing something. I think a lot of our Western Fasting, intermittent fasting, 5-2, all that sort of stuff. It, it it takes away the the spiritual reflection of fasting, as you say. Absolutely, and, which and, is uh, the thing, yes. really. And, yeah. and also the gratitude that comes from when you can start to eat again. Because uh, no, you're so grateful
0: for everything. I'll, I'll tell you yeah. openly. I mean, so I practiced lots of religions, one yeah. of which, of yeah. course, is Islam, which practiced for much of my life and i've rarely i've rarely ever missed a day in ramadan my entire life that's a very long passage if you want or pathway and i will tell you openly by it's not the first few days where you learn to reflect it's day 22 23 right. when your body starts to really go like how do people live like this because the idea is to actually connect to those who don't have it's to it's to basically get yourself to the point where you go like I actually feel how the poor feel. I feel how a drought feels. I feel how, you know, people suffer around the world while we're rushing around our cities and not feeling anything about it. And you know, it's really quite interesting. And I will tell you the first time you get this, the first time, I mean, I started of course, to be more and more spiritual through my life. The first time you get that moment of reflection to go like, I am so blessed to choose to do this, not to have this forced on me is a moment of compassion that really never reverses. Like for the rest of your life, you will feel what what the poor feel, what the hungry feel. Empathy and gratitude. Absolutely, Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I wonder if that power of empathy, power of gratitude, power of compassion, power of intention can be brought to business at all. I mean, is there a way what we can tell people today, look, you know, there's nothing wrong with business, go to work every day, just have a different intention behind it that would change the way you do it. What do you think? I find that it's hard, to be honest. Business sucks you in. And especially if you're not, um, if you're not at the top. And you and I both know, you're never really at the top, even as CEOs. So the CEO is number one slave. Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. My work as CEO has, has always been a lot more difficult because I had many more bosses. Yeah. You know, I had... Yeah. I had the shareholders, yes, I had the course, board, I course. had the chairman, I had, of you know, course. investors, I had everyone, right? And employees sit in the building thinking, oh, the CEO's the boss. Yes, no, really. no, 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 yeah, the CEO's yeah. not the boss. I mean, I think the the intention, however, I think is a privilege that the CEO yeah, has. Yeah. Because like you rightly said, you know, there is a, a public mission and a true motive or true yes. target, okay? You could do it the other way around. I mean, my my last startup, which sadly didn't work really well because of unexpected bumps on the road, let's say. But yeah, it was, of course, seen by our investors as an opportunity to be a multi-billion dollar business. But in reality, in my heart, I believed that I could use the reinvention of consumerism was the statement yes. to reinvent yes. consumerism in a way that was good for the planet. I believed that there, there was a lot of money in that. And had it succeeded, I believe we would have made a big well, difference. I'd like you. to hear more about that. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sadly, we we had to sell our IP eventually, so others own it now. Right, but, right. But, but the truth is, if you really think at the top level, you can say Coca-Cola pollutes more than Pepsi or whatever, you know, or has more plastic, single-use plastic. Or you can say aeroplanes pollute more than uh, cars or whatever. But... At the core of why our planet is deteriorating, at the core of why our value system is deteriorating, is that ancient realization that the that the Stoics have realized, which is humanity is all about consuming, right? And that we will always want to consume more. And perhaps my attempt was not to was not to say consume less. I was I, I wanted people to consume differently but to enable them to make the right decisions while consuming through information. And at the same time, to deliver things to them in a way that doesn't harm the planet. The delivery network is the issue, right? The fact that we allow ourselves to eat an apple from New Zealand, that's an issue. Because an apple from New Zealand versus an apple from Manchester, okay? The only difference the consumer sees is the price tag, right? While if I add, if I added also a CO2 cost yeah. tag to yeah. it, some people, at least the ones that want to make a difference, will look at it and say, yeah, it is a pound cheaper. Yeah, it smells a little nicer, but it's killing the planet. Mm. And I think that brings us on, doesn't it, to the whole question of
1: externalities and the whole question of how we account for things. And, you know, when we were doing, I've done a reasonable amount of work, probably not enough, but a reasonable amount of work on the principle of natural capital accounting and how externalities are considered. I remember at at Bain studying the Harvard Business School model that basically says, don't worry, kids. The the share price of a company takes into account (laughs) the impact of communities and the press and the world. And so as long as you focus on the share price, you will, don't worry, be absolutely looking at total systemic value, which is bull, right? And so we know that businesses have a free ride on the communities that they can harm. But businesses have a free ride on the pollution or the destruction of rainforests or the destruction of sea habitats that isn't accounted for on their balance sheet. So it means we've got all the measurements wrong. So no wonder the the people are suffering and no wonder that the planet is suffering because the, the way that we're measuring everything does not take those into account. So you then end up thinking, you know, a friend of mine started a company called True Cost, which I think was bought by Standard & Poor, uh, which Puma use to do natural capital accounting to put – and this is controversial because people say you can't value nature, uh, but the thing is you can't – also you can't not not value nature. Yeah. You can't yeah. so ignore, ignore exactly the value. Of, value of nature. Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. so um, you know, you can't say that, you know, a fly, one fly, although it might be a brilliant fly, is the same as all the elephants in the world. You, there must be some kind of way of some way of of measuring the comparative impact of a project but we have to start measuring those and Puma, for example has adopted true cost and natural capital accounting and I'd like to see all businesses saying this is our profits all oh, but by the way, in PNL terms the destruction of wildlife, the poisoning of the river, and the production of X amount of CO2 or methane. In our business means that we're actually loss making because actually net net for society we've actually destroyed value and that should be absolutely adopted uh, now whether that should be legislation or whether that should be enhanced by science-based targets as well because you i don't think you can put it you can just rely on a monetized value of nature you have to say okay we're also going to measure our water consumption our energy consumption our pollution Uh, and the destruction of earth and soil and natural habitats. But I think natural capital accounting has to be adopted because, for a start, employees should demand it from their companies. Employees should actually, when they're looking at a job ad, they'd say, I'd like to work at a company that does actually look at its real, true impact or value for society. And so that's the sort of, but that has to come with some spiritual, that comes with some spiritual reawakening as well, as well as the pure financial
0: measurements. I mean, it's, it's, it's such an intriguing thought to think that we can, if not everyone wants to start a Leon, if not everyone wants to start a Google that organizes the world information, early years of Google, then we should f- demand it by regulation that when you start something, at least you need to be good for society. I, I will openly tell you, of course, the challenge with that is, com- is global competitiveness, right? If, if this is applied in China, but not applied in America, then the Chinese companies are at a disadvantage, basically. Or if it's applied in Germany, but not in France, then the companies in Germany are not able to export properly because they have to put in more costs in making those things a reality, right? And believe it or not, I was shocked when I knew that. I don't know if that changed. But there was an actual uh, regulation in Germany at a point in time where briberies were tax deductible. Right, and it, yeah. and it was simple because the German companies would appeal to the German tax authorities and basically say, "Look, if I if I if I am if I am to do, do business in this country, yeah, yeah. In, in in this country or that country, the only way to do the to do business is to actually bribe someone. It's not this is not Germany. Yeah. This is the way yeah. business yeah. is done in yeah. those yeah. places, right? Yeah. And it shocks me, you know. The first time I heard this, I asked why, and I and they said because it's Otherwise, the German GDP yeah. would suffer, right? Mm, mm. And, and I think those I, insanities... Well, I, I, I think we have to understand, in the system, who
1: has the power? And, of course, a lot of the probably shareholding of the big businesses do come back to a small number of... an unfortunately small number of individuals that probably control the, the investment in a lot of these businesses. But we must remember, I think, our power as employees... And we must remember our power as people that own pensions to make sure that the to, to start deal with this global competitiveness point is we need to be able to say, you know what, as pensioners, we don't want our pensions invested in certain sectors. And a company that's actually doing a good job to start, to lead the way in this is, is, is Aviva, where there's a, a woman called Eugénie Mathieu who's helping Aviva to reallocate its resources to businesses that those pensioners would probably want to be part of there was a the bbc was you know that had this single children in need and comic relief and it turns out they were putting the money uh, once they'd made it before they'd spent it they were putting it and investing it in companies like arms companies so people were like hold it we've we've raised money for We've raised money for this project, and now it's going to to here. So I think we've got more sensible ways that we can allocate our pension money, and pensioners should seek pensions that you know potentially invest in companies that do at least report natural capital accounting, in the, or in natural capital accounting terms. And then as employees, I mean, I don't know whether you feel it now, but it shouldn't it be called a war for talent? We'll come back to that. But the competitiveness for talent—if I can't hire someone because and not doing good for society, then people should not work for those companies if they can avoid it. And the good news is that more and more in certain sectors, employees hold the pen
0: and they could actually decide which companies they work for. Certainly the top talent can decide that. Definitely, absolutely, yeah. I mean, the times I spent at Google, that was exactly the idea, that if you wanted the top talent, you had to appeal to them. And the top talent were definitely motivated by more than just making a salary. Okay I I, I want to talk about sure, dance sure. because oh, because you you said you want to talk about dance but before I go there I mean you and I are maybe in a slightly more privileged yes. place right you know we've been CEOs we had some car- you know career success and so on and so forth but I am a huge believer in the idea of using business for good I mean one yeah. one of the things that's making 1 billion happy my mission successful is I treat it as a business I mean slow mo yeah. One of the reasons why slow mo is reaching so many people, delivering a positive message and idea for people to reflect on the things that matter is because it's in a bit using the principles of business to try and find you know what people are interested yeah. in and so on. Yeah. Now, for our listeners who may not be in your position, what do you think one should do if they wanted to be a little more purpose-driven, a little more goodness-driven, if you want, uh, as they go to work?
1: Well, I think that
0: Henry, my business partner, was
1: with MC Saatchi the other day, and they have been doing work on understanding people. I almost said consumers. Humans. Humans. And I think the, let's take the climate crisis as an example. And that's not the only crisis that we have. But the climate crisis, the insight was number one, people are worried. Number two, people want to do something. Number three, they don't know what they should do. And four, the big insight was the single biggest change that we can make is by switching our diets to more of a plant-based diet. That's the single biggest thing that we can do right now, which is eat less red meat, not cut it out completely, but recognize the fact that from a health as well perspective, that potentially having reducing Significantly, the amount of red meat that we have, but making sure that the red meat that we do eat is from grass-fed or cows from good pastures, because the the impact on our environment from bad farming, bad meat farming is, is horrendous. That's the single biggest thing that we can do, and encouraging the, the supply chain and the farmers to farm vegetables and fruit in a way which doesn't use as much pesticides that starts to, to take ourselves off the addiction of, 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 of fertilizers, that that's the single biggest thing that we can do. Uh, we can adopt a more of a plant-based diet. And lo and behold, it does have an impact on our health as well because of the fiber, because of the nutrients, because of everything. And so I think that in terms of living, the first thing that one can do is to, is to make that shift. And secondly, is to continue as consumers to try and buy from those companies that are genuinely doing good. And the trouble is it's becoming more difficult because the ability of marketeers to greenwash and to value signal, unfortunately, has becoming quite becoming quite adept at making it look like they're doing something. So I think that what I'd like to see is an entrepreneur, a young entrepreneur, providing the information app-based to consumers for them to truly find out the truth of a company so what i'd love someone to be able to provide is you literally hold not even the barcode you hold a picture like you do with those wine apps hold something over a product and i know that they are appearing now but something that gives you how they buy from their customers net impact on soil degradation or deforestation or plastic consumption or their recycle rates or whatever i think that that kind of transparency of information should be something that hopefully a few entrepreneurs can can try absolutely. and make more
0: more accessible absolutely yeah, good yeah i find it shocking really that we have nutrition facts on the pack but we don't have the amount of carbon that yeah, it, exactly. it's yeah. used or yeah. the you know the plastic that will yes, end up exactly. coming yeah. out of it you know in, a, in an interesting way if businesses have to pay for the negative impact Either by swaying consumer opinion or even by regulation, I, I I thought at a point in time that businesses should literally pay a packaging tax. If you use a package when you're printing that package or producing it, whether it's plastic or cardboard or whatever, there are different tariffs for it. Because and, there's you know, a
1: cost, there's a cost to society of that, and yeah, someone's going to have to clear it up. And yeah. why, why should why exactly
0: should, why should everyone pay it for their taxes? Exactly, yeah. I, you know, I I think the idea of Having more transparency is important, but but I think you know my question and you answered that really kindly and, and precisely is that every one of us needs to engage. It's the choices that we make that drive businesses to either be ethical and positive for our planet or just get away with the murder, really. yeah and the, and the cost to our health
1: of just eating junk food, I mean there's a great cost to it. The lack of energy that we have. Our inability to work and therefore get a good job mm-hmm. is impacted. Yeah. So I think that yeah, there's a major cost to uh, health and our energy levels and our yeah. our ability to feel positive and happy.
0: Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's dance. talk about dance. Yeah, dance as dance. The, uh, and as we would say oh, it in the da- UK, <laughs> dance, dance, yeah, dance. As we would say it in the UK. Let's America. talk about dance. I, the yeah.
1: trouble is about rhyming a song. You need to describe, is it dance or dance? Because the rhyme in a song is completely different. Yeah, 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 yeah. Easy. I was thinking about
0: that. Remember the Spice Girls? Is it France? Is it France? Does it die with France? Yeah, absolutely. You can't, there was a song by the Spice Girls that I remembered recently that Actually, it was American accent. Yeah. Like, oh, right. uh, yeah, they probably packaged it for very exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, was like, I was like, what's wrong yeah. with them? Anyway, having said that, I hosted a couple of weeks ago, Eleanor Salman, who basically left her job in the United Nations and took a year to dance all over the world. Did, right. did learned 18 dances. And I was like... Damn, that should be my life. Yeah, uh, yeah. You, you are totally into dance as well, right? So tell me about what's going well, on.
1: Well, so I right now I have a um, this. This isn't shoehorning a, 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 a like a uh, an advert This so. So I'm working on a, a mental health app called Ed Can Help, and it's uh, it's a sound therapy uh, used by psychiatrists from Harley Street, the Priory, and various different fields, and lots of psychotherapists within the NHS. And elsewhere, and it's a rhythm of sound which has dramatic effect on mental health. And it disrupts negative thoughts, and it allows the brain to resettle into a more happy place. And it's it's interesting to me because it's a it's a sound version of EMDR, which is the eye movement desensitization. And what we're realizing, scientists and uh, the psych- <laughs> psychiatrists, other scientists are realizing, is that there is there's something about rhythm in the human body. Oh, absolutely. And our heartbeat, our circadian rhythms, everything is a constant rhythm, a constant wave, a sign, our chakras, our mm. digestion, everything about us is actually a series of rhythms and that they, they can represent themselves in terms of sound, or they can represent themselves through a combination of sound and movement. So, there's a great guy called Mark Laponis. He was at a wellness retreat called Canyon Ranch in America. And he and there's another doctor that was there called Mark Hyman, but Mark Laponis still practices very much in his business Stone Over Health in Lennox, in the Berkshires. And he's written a book called Ultra Longevity. The first thing he says, you must breathe to live a long life. The second thing is you must dance. Now he doesn't necessarily mean purely boring dancing. What he means is Tennis is a form of dance. Does that make sense? Or ballet or certain forms of dance, right. moving to rhythm. And he says, the impact that this has on your immune system and ultra longevity is fundamentally about how to optimize your immune system. He says, he's is, is incredible. And so, my wife was, uh, I used to organize dance events at university. And I think that if I look now at EMDR and sound therapy, like, are I you like help, a
0: serious dancer? Like, you know,
1: well, I, I like dancing at dance events. I'm not, yeah. Are you yeah, good at yeah. it? You have to ask my daughters. I don't think will like about <laughs> it. But, uh, I probably thought I was back in the day. And so, you know, when electronic dance music first came about, which was probably, you know, for me, 89, 90, I was at university with the guys that started Innocent. We had a dance event called Please. And um, we, uh, anyway, um, and I, <laughs> anyway, I digress, I digress. Um, but the bottom line was those dance events mirrored what ed can help and emdr do today there were strobes so the light the the intermittent flashing of lights the intermittent flashing of the technology that was in those dance events the nature of electronic dance music it was fundamentally therapy if you think about the way that therapy like ed can help and other things are now applied and ballroom dance in a similar way had that rhythm and that movement to it and in when you not fighting i talk about the idea of What you see is not what you do. And that's from a a book written about dance that was recommended and, and edited by a friend of mine called Jane Melvin. She does a lot of dance in America. Dance is her main amateur pursuit. She goes all over America dancing. And what the book was about was explaining that dance fundamentally comes from within. And when we copy a dance, we copy it outside in. We should be experiencing it inside out. And this is a great metaphor for many things in life. When we look at a dancer, we say, oh, that's interesting. They seem to be putting their right foot forward, then they're putting their left foot back. And so we consciously start to mimic the dancer. When that dancer is dancing, they are feeling the music, they're feeling the flow, and they're in flow. And their brain, their rational brain, isn't saying, I'm now going to put my right foot forward, I'm now going to put my left foot back. They are in flow. When we try and copy someone who's in flow, we are not in flow ourselves. It takes a long while for us to go back to that unconscious state of being in flow, Mm. if that makes sense. Mm -mm. So this book, what you see is not what you do means that fundamentally you've got to embed yourself into the joy and playfulness of the present moment in order to dance. It is not a mechanical copying exercise of movements, if that makes sense. And so for me, there are, there's the immune system benefit of dance. And my wife, she got into the final of Dancing with the Stars, or Strictly, as it's called here, uh, with a guy called Anton de Bec, who's now a judge. And that was the most one of the most joyous periods of her life because she was dancing every day. Yes, she was getting fitter, but the emotional
0: journey uh, that I, she went through, or the emotional experience of that dance I was incredible. I can't agree more. Yeah. I'm not a dancer. I used to be quite a dancer as, as a young man, and then... I got so engaged in the in the left brained world, right? Yeah, and you know, being an executive and a yeah. businessman and a trader and so on and so forth, and I actually lost it somehow. I, of course, I I still have the rhythm, but somehow I lost. And what the sort of dance did you do? Hmm? Did you do ballroom dance or just dancing? I, at the clubs I, I did and... a bit of everything. Yeah, and You never yeah. really did Latin dance, which I think is what I'm going to probably go back okay, to one good, day. good, good. But the trick is this: the trick is there is something in us. It may be in our perception of time, maybe, uh, you know, I don't know, I had that interesting shamanic breathing class once, and I dedicated it to understanding time, if you want. I I do the weirdest things. And I actually realized that probably there is a difference between the feminine and the masculine, because I'm capable of recognizing each side of me, my my masculine side and my feminine side. My masculine side is highly associated with the arrow of time, the passage of time along a linear, uh, scale, if you want. While my feminine side, perhaps the reason why I'm legendary in yeah. video games, believe yeah, it or yeah. not, is because of my feminine side, because I, it's rhythmic, it's flowing with life, it's flowing yeah. where, the, where yeah. the game is going and so on and so
1: forth. Well, there was a great, I must find out who it was, but my daughter encouraged me to listen with her to a woman from California that lives in a yurt in LA. And she was talking about how a lot of masculine energy is actually in ascendancy whereas actually we need to start with feminine absolutely. energy which is womb mm. stomach mm. guts going inside absolutely. and actually it's quite earthy it's actually quite grounded mm-hmm. that that energy absolutely and i think that a lot of business energy is the energy of escape and ascendancy totally rather than the groundingness yeah. and an embedding nature yeah. in what we do and i think so i talk about the sacred feminine in the book and wing chung which, which was the is the martial art that underpins winning, not fighting. That was developed by women. It was developed by women from the Shaolin Temple, ung uh, Moi, and then Wing Chun herself, which means beautiful springtime. Uh, and they understood the power of going inside to that energy in both what you might call defense and attack within the martial art. And I think
0: you're absolutely right. We need to reconnect with that. I, I believe that in this hyper masculine world that we've lived in, sadly, we've created because of capitalism, once again, a, a world that's completely centered around doing, yeah. and as a result, it's hyper-masculine, it's yes. all out there, it's yes. all external, yes. that the the one, the most important ingredient is, is dance and rhythm, yes. music, yes. dance and rhythm.
1: Again, coming back to Alan Watts, he said that what we are is we're a series of tubes, those tubes move, we have lymphatic system, blood systems, gut, and then we have this ganglia and this brain that fundamentally likes to jiggle around (laughs) so he said we like to jiggle around by dance we like to jiggle around by going to the football and chanting Mm. we like to jiggle around at at concerts at dance events but at our heart we are beings where our brain likes to jiggle around whilst its subconscious makes all the tubes are working now that's that's. I'm not saying that there isn't more to life. Yeah, I'm not saying no, there's no, more it to definitely life. Works. It yeah, definitely yeah, 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 yeah. works. It definitely works. It definitely. is It's just is all needed. forms of vibration. Yeah. It's all forms of movement. It's all forms of rhythmic movement that make our brain happy. And yeah. have you ever studied the difference between my my friend Jimmy Allen taught me this between Kronos and Kairos? You know no, what's that? So so the, so the different gods of time. To your point in in Greece. Oh, there are gods, so, of, yeah, gods time. of time. I need
0: to study that and element of time. And and I I, I'm gonna.
1: I won't do him or. Greek philosophy, justice here, but I do know two things. One is that Chronos is the god of like chronological, is the god of continued, repeatable rhythm. So, in let's take a business example. Hello. That is management meetings on a Monday, HR meetings on a Wednesday, yeah. all meetings once a month, AGMs every call, qu- you know, call briefings every quarter, one annual general meeting. That's Chronos. We then have Kairos, who basically cuts across that. And that is a southern event where the Kronos needs to be interrupted. So it could be a hostile takeover. It could be something which happens which is not according COVID. to Chronos. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, yeah. COVID, exactly. Yeah. And, and those, that timing, it has a different God. And that, that God governs things in a completely different way from the sense of Chronos. And when I go and see my, my acupuncturist, Wendy, let's say I'm, I'm late. She goes, don't worry, I'll stretch time. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've all been, we've all, I mean, in a sound bowl therapy, mm-hmm. you maybe have done it for 45 minutes, feels I like agree. five hours. I agree. Do you know Absolutely. what I mean? So something has happened to time.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I can take all of the time in the world and keep talking to you forever. I I think for our listeners to go back and find some of the gold gems that you dispensed this time around, isn't it interesting to talk to a CEO who talks about the Tao and dance and, and play and all of that? But I want to ask you a couple of questions that I usually try to finish with. Of all the things that you've done in life, what would you consider is your biggest achievement?
1: Okay. So I'm going to say something that probably a lot of people say, but it's true. Is is, is my relationship with my daughters? How old? Uh, Twenty-one and sixteen. Relaxing, Actually, twenty-two man. and sixteen. So, so yeah. I just went and surprised my daughter on her birthday in, in in New York. So she's in New York and she's studying drama. Mm-hmm. And Eleanor is is still in the UK, but I am. Um, yeah, I mean, my my daughter Natasha texted me this morning and said, "Oh, you you are my idol." Uh, oh. And I just think, if I had that as a twenty two, you've obviously I'm probably not. But that's very nice of her to say. Yeah. But uh, I just, yeah, I just think that's yeah. the best. Uh,
0: Why I, 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 when Aya texts me, my daughter, yeah, she actually my Aya is very funny. So she texts me and says, "Dude, yeah, <laughs> that's great. it's great." Really <laughs> and, and just the fact that yeah. she tells yeah. me, yeah. That she calls me dude. You are dude, right? You are cool, dad. You are cool, <laughs> dad. You are cool, dad. dad. Life is good. And what would be you know, of everything that you've learned in spirituality in business and relationships, all of the books you've clearly are a very serious reader that you wrote or read or whatever, what would be your secret to happiness?
1: Um, I would say, as we have attempted to describe it in the book, which is to recognize that you have everything, you have all the assets required to be happy already. And that happiness, is a rediscovery of self. It's not an achievement or accumulation of the fruits that the ego uh, seeks. And it's a quick analogy here, because I was given this, which was this story, which was about the elephant and someone who had carved a beautiful elephant. And the person said, how did you carve such a beautiful elephant? And they said, oh, it was, it's very easy. I just take the bits of the wood or the... I've, or whatever it is, to take the, wood, the bits of the wood away that are not elephant.
0: <laughs> I love that. I know And I
1: think that once we realise that actually we need to take the bits of us away that are not that happy. are get us and us happy that are getting in the way of a happiness or get in the way of remembering our true self, then I think that that's a question of of of, of that rediscovery. It's a, happiness. I think is a question of remembering. A Question of remembering, not discovering
0: elsewhere. Best answer ever. I love you dearly. Oh, bless you. You're a lovely man too. You're an amazing, amazing man. I hope another friend for life. Oh,
1: likewise, likewise. I I was really looking forward to today, having read all about you. And I've... Really
0: enjoyed our conversation. Thank a, it's you. It's yeah. such a nice conversation. I'd like to talk more about you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's, but, let's, yeah, yeah. Let, let's <laughs> let them leave, and then and then you and I can have another tea and coffee. He drinks tea like the British people. That, <laughs> that, that, that was coffee. Uh, but I I am so 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 grateful for your time, John. This was really wonderful, and I'm so grateful to all of you that have joined us today. It's been, as I always say, an enormously generous thing of you to do to listen to slow-mo because it gives me the alibi to meet amazing people so thank you for that if you've enjoyed today's conversation help me share it with as many people as you can i really want to grow this further and further and further and reach uh, to to so many people hopefully if you know an entrepreneur or a business person or someone who wants to make a difference with their life i think this would be an amazing conversation for them, or just someone who wants to dance. Mm-hmm. As you know, uh, we've moved, not moved, but we've added a video component to slow-mo now. As I travel the world, I'll hopefully meet with some of the locals everywhere and just bring you video that you can see on YouTube. So search for slow-mo on YouTube, or just go to my official channel, Moga, that official, on YouTube. And um, yeah, do like and subscribe if you're watching us on YouTube, because that way you can get more content more quickly, as well as all of my other content that I'm posting there. Find me on social media. I am more underscore Gaudet on Instagram. If you have questions, guest recommendations, I'd really appreciate to hear from you. And uh, yeah, finally, if you haven't rated this podcast uh, five stars on your podcast player, go ahead and do it. It's a nice thing of you to do. And um, leave a nice comment as well, if you can. Putting all of this together, I will tell you that of all of the things that I do, which I do quite a few, I think that hour or two that I take to slow down and sit with amazing people like John is probably one of the biggest joys of my life. I encourage you to do that a little more because it doesn't matter really how busy you are today. There's always going to be an hour or two where you can slow down. I love you all for listening, and I will see you next time.